So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. We're going to go through verse 16 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the, the seat in front of you, somewhere along the row, that you can use this morning. We also have uh, scripture journals out in the narthex, to the table to the left, that you can take home and use as a journal and scripture. <clears throat> Philippians three twelve through 16. Out of respect for God and his word, let's please stand as we hear God's word. This is God's holy and inspired and errant word. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm sure you feel it just as I do. January and February in Virginia can be tough days to get through. I'm sure people who are from the Northeast and the Midwest are like, oh, you're a baby. And I am kind of a baby when it comes to cold. But these are the coldest days of the year. Not only that, the weather is gray, overcast. These are the days when various bugs and illnesses are at their peak transmission rates. I'm sure most of us have been affected by that recently. The anticipation of Christmas and New Year's, it's all over and done. It's in the past. Unless Valentine's Day is one of your favorite days of the year, the only thing we have to look forward to is spring. We've actually put up Christmas lights on our porch this, this year for the first time, and, um, and we like them so much we've kept them up. And they're still up right now, and I think it's giving, a little, it's giving a little brightness to January, even though the holidays are past. And have you noticed the advertisements? You know, it's in January and February that people start dreaming about their summer vacation. So I've seen Outer Banks uh, advertisements. I've seen cruise vacation advertisements. We're thinking about spring break already, aren't we? We're thinking about trips to Florida. South Carolina, they begin sounding like these must-have destinations as we seek warm weather and sunshine. But it's this time of the year that we must find strength to press on. We press on through the depths of winter knowing that certain truths will come to fruition, that the days are going to get longer and the days will slowly get warmer as spring is approaching. We have this innate knowledge, right, don't we, that the season that we're in is temporary. It's not going to last forever, and eventually we'll enter the next season. If you've lived long enough, you know that just as we complain about the cold right now, we're going to be complaining about the humidity in July, in August. And so what do we do? We press on. We press on. Because we know certain things are true. We know certain things are true. You know, in, in the same way, Paul is teaching the Philippians in this passage that they too must press on and persist in their walk with Jesus because of the important, unchanging truths 
that will motivate them to continue in their race. Throughout verses 12 through 16, he uses a lot of athletic language, like language that would be used in athletics and sports. He says, I press on in verse 12. He says uh, in verse 13, I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. And then 14, I press on again toward the goal, the prize. Right? He's, he's using these, these uh, sports analogies and words that we would think of. You know, Paul knows that when the winter comes, the winter of our spiritual journey, when it's hard and things feel desolate, when it's long and the nights are cold, that we need strength to continue. We need strength. So where do we find strength to fight and hold on to Christ, our Savior? Well, Paul gives us three motivating truths that will keep our eyes fixed on Christ and will strengthen our resolve to press on in our difficulties. But those truths are rooted in this one ultimate truth of his passage. You see, Paul is committed to pressing forward toward this upward call of knowing Christ Jesus because why? Because Christ Jesus has made him his own. Look at verse 12. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so it's out of that deeper truth. Christ has done that for me that then we can press forward in our relationship with God because the strength of our identity in Christ, the strength of our future with Christ, and the strength of our direction toward Christ. So we're going to look at the strength of our identity, the strength of our future, and the strength of our direction. First, let's look at this idea of the strength in our identity. How does Paul describe himself in verse 12 here? The first thing he says is not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Paul is saying, I am not perfect yet. I am still imperfect. You may have heard this, a teaching similar to this idea that of, of called Christian perfectionism, that we can create in, in our lives, we can, we can make it to a certain state in this life where we don't have sin, that, we're, that we haven't sinned anymore. But I want to dispel that as a false teaching. Friends, if Paul didn't achieve sinless perfection in his life, the apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, neither will you and I. It's just not the way it works. John, the apostle John, says in, in his letter, In chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We are going to be struggling against, fighting against our sin till the day we die. There's an encouragement in there, though. If you still see sin in your life, if you, like me, still see sin in your life, don't despair. It means you're still growing. It actually means there's spiritual life there. It means you're spiritually alive and you're fighting against it if you see sin in your life. And so he says he's not perfect, but it doesn't put him into despair. He says, I press on then to make it my own. You see, Paul's imperfections don't hinder his motivation. They actually inspire. They, they give him fuel. 
But for what? What is his ultimate motivation? What is his goal? Well, we have to go look back at verses 8 through 10 to see what he's referring to. Let's go back to verse uh, 8. And then read following up. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Do you remember what he's, re- what he's referring to? Of what is loss? Remember, it's his resume. It's everything he saw that made him righteous. Right? A Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day. Right? As to the law, blameless. A Pharisee. He had done everything right, he thought. A persecutor of the church in terms of zeal. He says, I count all that loss. I count it rubbish. That word rubbish, it really just means trash. It means stinky filth. In order that I may gain Christ. Right? He exchanged it all for knowing Christ. He says, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So there's his first thing he, he, he's striving toward, knowing that he's saved, that he's righteous in Christ and not in his own righteousness. And then also this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Right? And so that's what he's striving toward. He's to know that he's saved and righteous, righteous in Christ, but also to strive for the resurrection of the dead, to be fully united to Christ. And so Paul's saying that at the present moment, you know, he has some things, but he's also waiting on other things. So this means for you and I as Christians, there is an already aspect to our salvation, and there is a not yet, still to come. There is an already. What's already for us? We have been declared righteous in Christ because we believe in him, and his righteousness is given to us as a gift. But there's a not yet to come. There's this glory that we're still awaiting. We're still struggling against our sin. We're declared righteous, but we're, we're waiting for our personal righteousness to catch up. Martin Luther had this great formula, and it's a Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. Simul, coming from the word simultaneous, at the same time, at the same time, justus, righteous. At the same time, we are righteous and peccator, sinner. That is the state of the Christian. We are righteous and sinner. That's our state. We, there are things that are already, there's things that are not yet. And that's how we live our life. We press on in that, that identity. But why does he press on? Look at the last half of verse 12. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That is what motivated Paul. Because Christ has saved him. Because Christ had called him. You see, sovereign grace must come first before we make attempts at obedience. You remember God called Paul. Remember, remember his story. He's on the road to Damascus in Acts, and he is there to persecute Christians, to put this movement down, to see more Christians executed. And a blinding light shines upon him and blinds him. And Jesus tells him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's blind for three days, but his spiritual eyes become open. He trusts in Jesus. And, and this is what Jesus says 
to Ananias, who's going to take Paul in for a few days. He tells Ananias, he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. See, Jesus had a plan for Paul. He was his chosen instrument. He called him. And that's true for you and I, if you're a believer. He called you. He chose you. Those he predestined, he also called, Romans 8. And you know, when I tell that story about Paul before Saul, he didn't initiate that relationship. Was was Saul sort of on the way to go believe and trust in Jesus? No, he was going the opposite direction. And Jesus stopped him dead in his tracks and turned him around and gave him new eyes to see and faith to believe. You could say Christ conquered Paul and turned him into a believer. And so how do we hear God calling us today? How do we hear God calling us today? You know, we shouldn't be thinking or listening out for audible words of saying, you know, I I heard God audibly. Some people explain it that way. But that's not not normal, right? We shouldn't be, be listening for actual words. How do you typically hear God calling you? Well, it's through... God speaking to you through his word. That's how he does it. He calls us through his word and through the gospel, especially through the Holy Spirit. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden by your sin and by your sorrows and by this world. That is how God calls us to himself. He makes us his own. And therefore, Paul says, I press on. And he presses, and he presses on toward a future hope. That's our second idea this morning, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. He says, I'm still on this journey. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. You see, Paul's eyes now are focused forward. He says, I'm I'm not looking back. I'm straining forward. I'm looking ahead. But notice what he says in verse 13. 13. But one thing I do, what he's saying there is, I have a priority in my life now. And notice the conviction, what he says here. This one thing I do, he is motivated by one thing, pressing forward into Christ and to knowing his Savior more and more. You know, many things are important in our lives. I know you, I know you, you know me. There's lots of things you have to juggle that are important in your life. But there are some things that outweigh every other detail. And if you have it in right priority, everything else will fall into line. Paul said in in 1 Corinthians 15, it reminds me of what he says here. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Shares the gospel. He says, The most important thing in my life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for the Christian, that has to be number one. It has to be your top priority. He says, this is one thing I do. I strive forward to know Christ. But first, what does he say? He says, forgetting what lies behind. What does Paul mean by that? Forgetting what lies behind. That's interesting he says that because Paul often talks about his testimony. He talks about how he was saved. He he talks about the past. But what is he saying? Forgetting what lies behind. What Paul is saying there is, 
I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by the things I've done, the things I regret, or even the things that you look forward back you, you look back to in, with nostalgia. Because those things can trip you up. If you, if you continually think back on your life and you have regret, regret can cripple you. I'm sure like you, like me, you have things in your past you're ashamed of, that you regret that you did. And sometimes the shame of that is heavy upon you. And sometimes you maybe even hear the whispers of Satan bringing those to your mind, condemning you about those. Maybe Satan whispers to you, who do you think you are? You think you're a Christian? I know what you've done. I know what you've said. I know what you've thought. What makes you think God will accept you? You're filthy. You're stained. You're damaged goods. You've messed up one too many times. Don't you know that what you're doing is futile? It's all for nothing. Have you ever heard those lies? What do you think you're doing coming to church, listening to the gospel, trying to be a good person? You know, it's when you hear those lies, you need to know that we all have done things that disqualify us to be a Christian. We, we all have done things that disqualify. I have done things that should disqualify me. I have no right to be here. Paul had done things that disqualify him for eternal life. Paul's saying that while we never really forget those awful things we've done, because he talks about his own testimony, however, we're no longer defined by them. Because Christ took took the shame and took the guilt of our past and what we've done. Sometimes when you read Paul, you you hear this aching in his voice. In 1 Corinthians 15, he calls himself the least of the apostles. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. He didn't even think he was worthy to be an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. But listen to what Paul says. Where does he find his footing? Where does he find his standing? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. You hear what he says? By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's how I stand, because of his forgiveness. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, beloved hymn. We sang it this past Thursday at the funeral. He's got this great line that that mirrors what Paul says. He says, I am not what I ought to be. Remember, John Newton was a slave trader. Then he turned pastor later in life. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see what he's saying? Just like Paul said, by the grace of God that is in, that is in me, I am what I am. It's, it's, it's through what Christ has done. So if you're torn up right now about your past, hear these words. Your failures, your sins have been forgiven as you look to Christ for salvation. Jesus' righteous blood 
has washed you clean. He doesn't dwell on your past sins anymore, and he won't bring them up. So when you hear the lies of Satan, tell Satan that. There's this uh, example of forgiveness within uh, the Narnia book, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, really what that first story is about, these kids, they go into this magical land, uh, winter land, where there's, um, it's always winter, n- never Christmas, and the white witch is ruling on the throne. And um, that first book is really about the betrayal of one of the, the children, Edmund. He gets tricked by the white witch uh, and turning his brothers and sisters into the white witch. Well, some of them. And for Turkish delight, Turkish delight was this candy, I guess. I've never had one. But he really wanted it, and she had a lot of it. And she tricked him, and he he betrayed his brothers and sisters and for this for this candy. And so the, the rest of the book is, can he be saved? Can he be turned around? Can he be brought back in and reconciled to his siblings? And can he be saved? And so Lucy, his sister, says, please, Aslan, can anything be done to save Edmund? Aslan says, all shall be done, said Aslan, but it may be harder than you think. He says that because he'll have to die. Aslan will have to die for Edmund's sin. And then he rises again. He's, Aslan is the picture of Christ in this book. And so he does that. He dies, atones for his sin, and frees Edmund from the, the grips of the queen, the white witch. And he's brought back to his brothers and sisters. And Aslan said, here is your brother, Edmund. And he says, there is no need to talk to him about what is past. And then we see this moment of reconciliation. Edmund shakes hands with his others, other brothers and sisters, and they say, he says, I'm sorry. They say, it's all right. But notice what Aslan said. There's no need to talk to him right now about what is past. And that's a picture of God forgetting and forgiving our sin. Jeremiah 31 says, I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. God puts it away. It's done. It's dealt with. It's dealt with on the cross. And so that's one thing. When we look back in our lives, regret can cripple us, but also nostalgia. You ever look back on your life and you say, man, those were the days. Those were the glory days when everything was much better and now everything's worse. Today just stinks compared to the decades before. That can cripple you too, because that, 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 will, that will hamstring your faith, and you will not move forward. You will not press on, because you think it will never get better as the way it used to be. I was reminded of that when I read Numbers, and remember that in the wilderness, Israel, the Israelites thought about Egypt, and they were like, it was so nice back then. All we have to eat now is this manna. But back then, at Egypt, we had Leeks and onions and melons and garlic. And it costs nothing. It says, oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember, we had fish in Egypt. But now our strength is dried up. And there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. God almost strikes them dead there. He's angry. And of course, there's another time where Moses intercedes for the people. But they're thinking about the bygone era. When they were slaves. (laughs) Did you notice that they totally... Didn't he talk about being slaves and how hard that was? Often when we look back on our lives, 
We forget about the bad. We only highlight the good things we remember. But that nostalgia can cripple us as well if we're not straining forward, if we're not looking ahead. What Paul says here, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, it it reminds me of what Jesus says in Luke 9 when he's talking about what it means to be his disciple. He says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Jesus responded, well, you know, foxes have holes, birds have the air, and the air have the nest, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Basically saying, are you sure you want to follow me? We're going to be sleeping on the ground. To another, he said, follow me. And but the person said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say bye, farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Right? What he's saying is, you, you need to have your eye on the prize. You need to be looking forward. You can't become a Christian and always be looking back. Always be focusing your eyes backwards. No, look forward. God has better things for you. He's got good things for you as you serve him. And so what lies ahead for Paul and for us? Well, he says it like this. I press on, verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He calls it a prize. He calls it a goal. He calls it an upward call. You must have your eyes on future glory, friends. You must have your eyes on the finished line. And that's the direction we need to be looking. So that's the last point this morning. We need to have strength in our direction. Ask yourself this morning, are you heading in the right direction in your your faith? What are you looking at? What's guiding you? I don't know if you've ever been uh, I don't know, in the woods, walking around, hiking, and um, without any landmarks or without any compass. It's really easy to get lost if you do not have a sense of a landmark to give yourself, put yourself in relation to. You know, at, when you're at the ocean or at the beach, it's really, it's pretty hard to get lost because you have a huge landmark to think about. Oh, okay, the ocean's over here and I'm going to go north and south. But when you're in the woods, it's hard. I, mean, I was hiking with some friends in high school. It was actually a fishing trip. We were uh, fly fishing in the, in the woods, and I had gotten separated from the, from the rest of the group. And uh, I had a little moment of panic because I didn't see anybody. All I could see was the river, you know, kind of the, the stream going through the woods. And, and all I knew was that they were up ahead of me somewhere. And so I didn't know exactly how I was going to get to them, but all I knew is if I follow the stream, I'll likely I'll follow, I'll find them, right? And that's what I did. I followed the stream. I ran, I ran, I ran, I ran until I found somebody because I had a landmark, because I knew that I had a direction to head in. Even if you're not sure of the path, are you heading in the right direction? And so what is that for the Christian? What are those landmarks? What, what is it that tells us, yep, we're heading in the right direction, even if you're not sure of what the path is going to look like? I'd argue this morning that those are what we call the means of grace. The means of grace for the Christian are those landmarks. They're the direction markers. It's the compass. And those are things like God's word. Those are things like the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's prayer. It's being in church. 
Those are the directional markers, the landmarks that help you along your path. Know that you're going in the right direction. And it's with those that we can press forward, that we can strain forward, that we can keep pushing. You know, even though we have this finished work of Christ, this, this, this gift beyond all expression, it doesn't mean we slump back in, in complacency as Christians. Look what Paul says in verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. See what he's saying? If you are mature, you know there's immaturity left in you, and you need help, and you need to be guided. He says, let the mature know that they've got to grow. It's not the mature in the church that think they have no, no more uh, growth left in them or, or nothing left to learn. No, there's a humility to the Christian life that we're constantly growing, we're constantly learning and growing into Christ. You see, spiritual growth is about direction toward perfection, not direction in perfection. We don't, we don't head off in that direction while perfect, we head toward perfection. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 4, that we are in church here to equip the saints for the work of ministry, the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to this complete state. That is what we're heading toward, this perfect state, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal is completion, perfection but we're not there yet. You're not there yet, I'm not there yet. So final question this morning, how will you keep going? How are we going to keep going? Well, first, have your sights on Christ. Have your sights on Christ. You know, um, funerals, which we had this past Thursday, of Al Mayo, funerals remind us, you know, that though Christ... And being with him and wanting to see his face, being in his presence, though that might feel distant to us, a funeral reminds you that the finish line is not too far from many of us. It's, it's that present reminder that there is an end to this road. It's, it feels a long way off at times, but it's really not. And to do that, to have that strength, we have to remember what we've attained. Look at verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So keep your sights on Christ. You've attained him, and now move toward him. And then have your sights on holiness. Always be working and striving toward holiness. At the end of 1 John, he said, Little children, keep yourself from idols. We keep ourselves from idols. We keep ourselves from the things that want us to worship them not as a way to earn your way into God's favor, but to keep a clear vision on the fact that he has made you his own. Have your sights on Christ, on holiness, but on grace. He has made you his own. Friends, we're going to fall, we're going to fail, but the good news is we have an advocate. We have an advocate who laid down his life for us, who called us to be his own, who conquered us just like he conquered Paul. My sister sent me this poem yesterday, written by my brother. I'm going to end with this. 
my brother-in-law is a pastor, and he wrote this beautiful poem. I didn't even know he wrote poetry. And uh, don't think just he's a pastor and he writes poetry that I'm going to start writing poetry, so don't be expecting me to write poetry. But he wrote this beautiful poem. And um, I asked her if I could share it, and she said, I'm sure he'd be fine with that. It's called, Christ the King Has Conquered Me. I thought it tied in with this passage that I'm preaching on. Christ the King has conquered me. He crushed my sin and set me free. He vanquished my heart, but as a dove, and his banner over me is love. In my sinful desires I tried to resist. I opposed his way and held up my fist. I fought against him to win this war, but his banner of love over me was more. His love is the most powerful thing in the world, and it's displayed by a banner that has been unfurled. The world can now view it if they have eyes to see. It hangs on a hillside on top of a tree. And now I fight for Christ the King, and to my Lord I love to sing of His relentless love for me, which is shown by a banner that hangs on a tree on the top of a hill called Calvary. Has Jesus conquered you, friend? As He's conquered me? As He conquered Paul? Has He changed you? Is He changing you? He is the one we go to and put our trust in, who saves us and who calls us His own. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We attribute everything to you. The only thing we grant, only thing we give in our in our salvation is our sin. And you give us forgiveness. You give us the righteousness of your son by faith. Simply for trusting in you. So Father, when the days are are, are short, When the nights are long, when it's cold outside, would you strengthen us, strengthen our resolve to press on and fight because Jesus has conquered us, because he has made us his own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.